my natural science nuglets. Natural science noodles? We need to work on a name. Welcome back to another fun-filled episode of Natural Science Daily. It is the Sunday before this episode is about to come out. I recorded the audio interview portion of this episode last week while I was spending time in the University of Maine Sugar Shack. So you guessed it or you saw it on the Instagram. This week's episode, the interview is on maple syrup making from sap to syrup and then straight to the pancakes like what Jack and I had this morning. I wanted to start this episode. We will have a nature fact of the week. We will also have a news article of the week. It's going to be a full fun-filled episode. But what I wanted to take a moment and recognize is this whole virus going around that I'm sure most of you had heard have heard about. And it's, excuse my language, pretty shitty. We live right near the University of Maine and the college students are being sent home. They have to finish their senior years or everyone really, not just the seniors. I think of the seniors more, but they have to finish their year, their semester out doing online classes. For some people, that may not really seem like an issue, but if you're in natural science, you realize, well, I can't really do telemetry over my computer. Yeah, trying to do natural science and learn field-based skills over a computer, kind of hard. So I just want to recognize that some people are having a difficult time with this, and I hope listening to this podcast brings you a little bit of happiness or just keeps you connected to natural science while you're at home having to do homework on your computer and I recognize that this must be a bummer but maybe this you can take the time to look over your resume double check with all your references that you are allowed to use them maybe revamp your cover letter think of skills that you want to add to your resume to really make you the best possible candidate for your dream job and just use this time now that you don't have to sit in class to maybe make yourself a better natural scientist find a new hobby learn a new bird species learn more about trees just really make sure you do something to make sure that you stay in the natural science loop and you stay relevant and you stay engaged because i think that's the best and only option we have right now. Volunteer if people are still doing things. You have all this time now to volunteer and make something of, just really please make something of the time and just try and see this as a positive in a very upsetting time. So that's my rant about being a college student in this trying time. I'm very glad I'm graduated. So with that being said, let's get into our Nietzsche fact of the week. I'm getting the Nietzsche fact and the news article of the week from this month's wildlife professional from the TWS magazine that they put out. Um, If you don't know what TWS means, it's the Wildlife Society. It's a professional organization of professional biologists and student biologists. And I've been a member since my freshman year of college, so five years now. But anyways, they do this segment in the magazine called The State of Wildlife, and I was reading it this morning, and I found this little mention in the Central Mountains and Plains, so if you're from that area, hi, thanks for listening, but also, it seems that a wolf pack may, possibly, still, it seems that they're still trying to, you know, work some things out, 
but that there was a wolf pack at least in Colorado, which would be the first time in, it says, 70 years. Um, I guess in January, wildlife officers visited a site in northwest Colorado where there was an animal carcass and there were wolf tracks around the carcass. And the officials that were there said they heard howling not far off. So that is our nature fact of the week that maybe wolves are expanding the range or at least returning to places that they have been extirpated from. That was not my research. That was from the TWS magazine. And if you guys want to learn more, I think they may have it online or maybe you have to be a member, but you should definitely check out the TWS website. Very informative, very interesting. Keeps you up to date. With that being said, let's dive right into the interview with the guys from the University of Maine and learn more about how to make sap into syrup. Just a little bit of a timeout before we dive right into the interview. I do want you guys to know that there will be some crackling, maybe some laughter, and the sound of splitting wood while the interview is going on because we were literally sitting right next to the sap evaporator while we were taking the interview. So just keep that in mind and let's get right into it. All right, so can you introduce yourself? I am Keith Canote. I'm the University Forest Manager at the University of Maine. Okay, so how long has the university been boiling sap for maple syrup? They first started doing it in the early 1990s, um, and they've done it every year since then. Can you kind of explain the process from tree to bottle? Sure. So it all begins in the spring. Um, the uh, warm days and cold nights that we have during the spring creates a stem pressure in the tree that drives the sap up to feed the feed the new buds. And all we do is we drill a hole in the tree and collect some of that sap as it's moving up the tree, um, either through old-fashioned buckets or a tubing system. Um, and we gather that up, and when we bring it into the sugar house, it's anywhere between... Oh, usually one and a half and maybe as much as 4% sugar content. And we need to get it up to 67% sugar content to make it into maple syrup. And we do that by boiling. Put it in a basically a big pan um, called an evaporator. And that's what it does. It evaporates water, concentrates the sugar, and also cooks the sugar as it goes along. Um, and then at the end, uh, we end up with, with maple syrup. That's all there is. You don't add anything to it. All we do is filter it at the end or remove anything that happened to have gotten into it and the minerals that are also concentrated in the tree. Um, reheat it and put it in bottles and that's it and it's maple syrup. Cool. Uh, how, do you know how many trees you guys have tapped right now? We tap about 400. Wow. That's a lot. Uh, how, long, <laughs> how long does it usually take to get all that laid out to get all the trees tapped. We can do that in three or four days. Oh, okay. Uh, we're actually a pretty small operation. Some operations have 50,000 trees, mm-hmm. uh, big commercial ones, um, but they range in scale from a couple trees in someone's backyard um, to large commercial industrial operations. Anybody can make maple syrup. All you have to need is a maple tree, a drill, and something to collect the sap in and a way to boil it. Does drilling the holes in the tree ever hurt it or um, make it vulnerable to disease at all? So any time you're breaching the bark of a tree, you're causing uh, causing an entry point 
um, potentially for decay organisms. Um, so hopefully, you know, what we like to see is the tree will heal over that hole in a year or two. Mm -hmm. um, and we limit the number of holes we put in the tree. Usually if a tree's less than two feet in diameter, it'll only get one hole. If trees over two feet, we'll get two holes, and some big ones might get three. So we try and limit the size of the uh, uh, wound that we create. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it is a vector point that will, or potentially, um, introduce decay organisms in the tree. But if done properly, you can tap a tree for a long, long, long time, um, 100 years or more, you'll probably continue to tap a tree if it, if it remains healthy and vigorous and keeps growing. Okay. At what time in the spring are you like, yep, it's time to start tapping trees? So it all depends on the weather. Um, the sap will run right in the middle of the winter if it's, if it's warm enough during the day. Um, we usually hold off till about the last week of February, um, but again, that's when we're weather dependent. Mm -hmm. If it stays cold, the sap just isn't going to run. Um, and if it gets warm early, we'll, we'll tap early. But we, we like around here, right around the last week of middle end of February is when we start tapping. And, and then the season goes until the buds break in the spring. Okay. As soon as that happens, it's over. Um, there's a physiological change, and the syrup just doesn't taste good anymore. Oh. Um, called buddy syrup it's actually gross huh i wonder that's i didn't know about that um another question oh so you guys sell the syrup have we do did you have to go through a process to be able to sell it or have you always been able to sell it there's a there's a state licensing process for sugar houses if you want to sell them um so you have to meet certain standards you have to have stainless steel equipment and a vented house and all sorts of things. It's, it's not a very onerous process. Um, in general, syrup, because of the high sugar content, it's a pretty safe product. Um, so an inspector from the state comes out, or came out, and uh, certified that our house met the standards, mm -hmm. um, and then we could sell it. Um, there's a minimal fee that goes with that. Um, I think for us it's $25 a year. Okay. Um, since we make more than 15 gallons of syrup, if we make less than 15, it's like $2 a year. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's not a burdensome process. So you guys just got a new sugar shack this year. We did. Um, how do you think that'll change you guys' process? Is it uh, will it help? Will it's made it's it's made it easier to move around in the sugar house just because it's bigger. It's a little bit nicer to work in. Um, our main reason for building building a bigger sugar house was that we have a lot of visitors, uh, school groups, and you just couldn't fit them in the old one. Um, so that's that'll be nice when we bring people through to show them the process because we are an educational institution, so that's, that's part of our mission, is to do awesome. that. And the old house was just too small to get anybody in comfortably. Yeah. Well, thank you for no taking the time to talk to me. Sure. Okay, so we just wrapped up with Keith Canoni. Now we're going to walk across the Sugar Shack and talk with Charlie Koch, another one of the university forest managers. You guys may recognize his voice from the very first episode of Natural Science Daily, would you like to learn more about logging, where we talk with Charlie and a couple of other guys about logging. So let's talk to Charlie. So um, it's, we call it maple sugar and maple syrup. Do you have to only have maple trees to make maple syrup? You have to have maple trees, yes, but they don't have to be sugar maple trees. Mm -hmm. um, sugar maple trees make wonderful syrup. About half these trees here on the forest are sugar maples, mm -hmm. but the other half are uh, red maples. Okay. Uh, you can use any kind of maple tree. I've actually made really good syrup without a single sugar maple tree in the batch. <laughs> I've got uh, about half red maples, 
the ones that I tap at my house are mm-hmm. about half red maples. The other half are Norway maples. Oh. Yeah, which are actually an invasive. They're not even from here, right. but, but they make a really good maple syrup. <laughs> that surprises a lot of people. Does it taste different, or is it just like the sugar content? The sugar content, it ranges from tree to tree. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've had every bit as good a success with reds and Norways, even silver maples, or okay. any kind of maple, really, huh. will run in the same range as, as the sugar maple, yeah. at least in my experience. <laughs> What I have found is sometimes they they'll get buddy earlier in the season. Mm-hmm. So if it was if it was entirely up to me, I'd have all sugar maples because you get a way better season that way. Yeah. Um, but you get what you get. Um, <laughs> one question I kind of forgot to ask was uh, how long does it usually take to go from sap from the tree to uh, syrup in a bottle? There's no timer. Okay. We have no idea. This is a continuous flow kind of system. So. There's no amount of time. There's, there's sap flowing into it constantly, and we'll draw syrup off it mm-hmm. regularly, but there's no way to say how long that's been in okay. I honestly I have no idea. How, is there a general ratio for how much sap to how much it takes a pint of syrup? Uh, yes. Called, we use the, uh, they call it the rule of 86. Mm-hmm. Take, the, uh, take the number 86 and divide into it your your sugar content. Okay. So if you've got around 2% sugar content, it'll take about 43 gallons of sap to make nice. a single gallon. So if you get sweeter sap, um, it makes a big difference. Yeah. So it doesn't it doesn't sound like a really big number, but going from 2% sugar to 3% sugar makes a whole lot less water that you have to boil. Right. Off. Goes the other way too. If you get a, a particularly watery tree and you're only getting one and a half percent you know, I've getting them as low as 1.3% and I don't even bother boiling it. That's yeah. just Right? And if you had 1%, it would take 86 gallons. That's, a lot. That's too much. So you, if, if you want a handy number, 40 usually works pretty well. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it can be as low as 25. Um, I've seen just like in some of the jars, jars lined up, some's darker and some's lighter. Is yes. that a sugar content thing? No, nope. sugar content is exactly the same. Okay. Um, what is going to be different is the amount of uh, caramelization in mm-hmm. that sugar. Okay. Imagine it like toasting a marshmallow. Yeah. Right? You have the same amount of sugar, the exact same amount of sugar. You toast it for a little while, it starts getting that light brown and it changes flavor, mm-hmm. changes odor, everything about it changes. Yeah. You toast it even more and it's it's gonna change a lot. Right? right. And eventually of course you can burn it. But this is the same thing. You're cooking and caramelizing sugar, which changes its color, mm-hmm. changes its aroma, and it really changes its flavor. Nice. So if you get a really light-colored syrup, same amount of sweetness to it, but less caramel, okay. less caramelized maple flavor. So it, it tends to be a more delicate flavor, mm-hmm. um, a little less maple-y, if mm-hmm. that's a thing. <laughs> uh, but it looks it looks great in clear, you right. know, clear plastic bottles, clear glass bottles. Mm-hmm. Stuff it looks wonderful. It sells like crazy. Yeah. So yeah. all the all the guys that do this for a living are trying to make that real light grade. Because it sells well. Yep. Um, the stuff that, that you get in in your darker plastic containers that you can't see through. Yeah. A lot of times that's going to be your your darker grades of syrup. Uh, okay. With a with a much stronger maple flavor. Personally, I like it a lot better. Yeah, I, I always prefer the darker stuff. Yeah, but at some point it gets to be too dark when it starts to look like old coffee. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, some of the trees will start budding up, and you'll get a little of that. 
Keith was mentioning, the buddy flavor to it, it gets mm -hmm. a little bitter aftertaste. And yep. if, you, if you keep going, you go too far, it's going to start tasting less like maple syrup and more like black licorice. Which you don't want, really. You don't want that. Um, a little bit at the end is okay, but when you start getting into that grade, mm -hmm. that's just a... You know, that's a manufacturing kind of grade. That's what they use in granola. Okay. That's what they use in you know, barbecue sauces. It's something that's got so many other flavors in it that'll cover that taste up. Mm -hmm. So you can use real maple syrup without spending $60 a gallon. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So to wrap up this week's episode, the news article of the week doesn't pertain to maple syrup making and that sort of thing. But if you listened to last week's episode with Kyle Lima, you know that we talked about habitat fragmentation and some of the work Kyle did in regards to that in Africa. This week when I got this month's TWS magazine, the front page article is about, you guessed it, fragmentation. The article leads off by talking about a wolverine known as M56. This individual was collared in Wyoming in 2008. After a few years, the transmitter died, which if you have ever worked with transmitters or trying to track animals, it's kind of a risk you're willing to take. Transmitters die all the time. They stop working. You never hear from them. And sometimes the animal just pops back up. But this transmitter stopped working. Um, and the animal was found in 2016, eight years later, after a rancher had to kill it for harming their livestock. That's not the focus of this article, though. The focus is over the eight years this animal was collared, it went through four states, spending three of those years in Colorado and also going to North Dakota, which made it become the first wolverine that was confirmed before in, within the state before it was euthanized. A journey like this isn't super common based on the current knowledge of the species, but the article did say that males have the potential to have home ranges of over 300 square miles. Granted, females don't have the same range, they have different behaviors, but males can have very vast ranges. I mean, can you imagine the amount of roads, backyards, and just developed area this animal went through? Not that it was all like cities. I mean, it probably didn't run through a place like Times Square, but either way, this animal had to cross things affected by humans. And the fact that it made such a journey before having to be euthanized is just, it blows my mind. And the article goes on to talk about a couple other examples of habitat fragmentation affecting animals. So it talks about how in Southwest Canada, grizzlies try to avoid roads in developed areas just because they don't do as well there. They don't like it, I guess. And it also mentions that though mountain lions seem to tolerate developed areas maybe better than grizzly bears, they do struggle when their mountain habitat is severed by highways. Apparently, they, the article mentioned that there is science that shows that even the mountain lion gene flow in Los Angeles has been constricted due to habitat fragmentation. So gene flow is, in, simpler, in simple terms, it's basically like lots of animals being able to mate with other animals and not their brothers or sisters. So like there's genetics flowing throughout the population. It's not all the same genes mixing with the same genes, just as kind of an explanation. So further on in the article, it goes into detail about how these topics are kind of becoming a more broad issue in a developing world. Fragmentation will only become more common. Just so you can imagine this. Imagine having your entire house cut in half, but to get 
from one end of the house, maybe where you sleep, to where you eat, you have to risk your life every single time. Rather than trying to risk your life to get the refrigerator to the refrigerator, you're probably going to try and find a granola bar under your bed or maybe just not travel as far because, you know, it's not really worth dying. Or if you do travel to the refrigerator, the likelihood of you trying to get back to your bed is very slim. This kind of metaphor is essentially what a lot of wildlife has to deal with in a fragmented landscape, but on a much, much larger scale. The article wraps up kind of by talking about corridors to help promote connectivity across landscapes so animals don't have to risk their lives to travel across the landscape throughout their habitat. One example they give is that the Canadian government made overpasses for wildlife to cross the Trans-Canada Highway. Basically, they made this bridge that goes from one edge of the highway up and over the highway to the other edge so that wildlife doesn't have to try and dash in front of cars. They just travel up and over it. It's covered in grass and shrubs by the looks of it. And it's just a safer way for animals to travel and have more connectivity among their habitat. But even on a smaller scale, the article talks about how even just letting your yard go wild and not mowing it and maintaining it so aggressively and being it, allowing it to be more natural allows for more habitat connectivity throughout your neighborhood. So granted, I didn't go and talk about every detail this article has. There's so much great information and I'm going to try and link it to the description of the podcast. I just really wanted you guys to see that there are more issues of habitat fragmentation across the world like this is a growing issue and even you can have an impact to try and change this and do your part to really fix this problem or at least just be aware that it is a thing and that you mowing your lawn super short may inhibit some animals from being able to get from one side of their habitat to another for example salamanders they may not want to cross the super vast open area with super short grass so they may not be able to get to the vernal pool that they've always gone to but if you leave your grass long and let there be sticks and stuff in it they may feel like they can cross it more safely and not get eaten by a red-tailed hawk so with that being said i hope you guys learned a lot about maple syrup and maybe even try it on your own someday I hope that you realize that habitat fragmentation is a real issue in our world and that you enjoyed this episode and continue to make natural science part of your daily conversation. Have a great week, guys. Bye.